Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the truth claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives in the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, Stephen continues our series on the journey's core convictions. These are the beliefs we hold most dear because they are essential Christian beliefs. Here, he teaches what we believe about humanity, sin, and salvation. In other words, who are we and what were we made for? What went wrong? And what has God done and what will God do to fix it? So, Let's take a listen as Stephen teaches us about the journey's core convictions. All right, so last week, Mace introduced a new series on our core convictions as a church. And he walked us through the concept of theological triage and our first two articles of our core convictions, the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture and theology proper. So today we're gonna continue this series by zooming in on the role of humanity in the Christian story. But first, I want to open up with a question. This may be a hard question for some. Maybe you've never thought about it before. Uh, Maybe it seems intuitive to others. Uh, But that's a question, and I just want to see what y'all's thoughts are coming into this lesson on it. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? What do y'all think? Created in the image of God. Okay, created in the image of God. Very biblical answer. Yeah, we have ability to reason. Sentient beings. What does that mean? <laughs> Man, I don't even need to teach this class. <laughs> We're all humans. We make mistakes. Yeah. Very good. And a sense of ethics. A sense of ethics. That distinguishes us from the animals. Yeah, we're moral creatures. Yeah. Different from animals. When I was a student at the University of Houston, I always heard about this notorious class that the honors college students had to take. I wasn't in honors college, but they had, I always heard about this class called Human Situation, or Human Sit for short. And I always wondered, what sort of class warranted the title Human Situation? And it never occurred to me to just go on U of H's website and read the description of the class. So here's a, a short description of the class from their website. It says, in this course, we begin the study of our cultural heritage by examining texts from the Greek, Roman, Hebrew, Christian, and Islamic cultures of antiquity. These key texts or classics present compelling, if not always harmonious, insights into human situations. I do appreciate the emphasis on compelling, if not always harmonious. At the very least, U of H recognizes that the Bible isn't silent on the most important matters of what it means to be human. And for almost 2,000 years, the Christian story's vision of humanity, the fall, and salvation has profoundly shaped Western culture. 
but a shift has happened in our culture. The anthropological furniture of our culture's living room has been replaced. And it's easy to notice. Just take a look outside, turn on the news. We're living in a strange new world, as Carl Truman puts it. The most relevant cultural issues of our times regarding gender, sex, identity, political issues such as war, government, social justice, all come back to a changing understanding of what it means to be human. Our cultural anthropology is moving away from the Christian story and towards the secular story. But as we've previously covered in other lessons, we find that the secular story is inadequate to account for reality, including our understanding of what it means to be human. So what is the Christian account? Well, we at The Journey believe that answer is found in the Bible. So let's take a look at our first article of our statement of faith as we believe humanity is articulated in the Bible. This is Article 3 on Humanity. Uh, can someone read this article out loud for me? Okay. The story reveals who we are and what we were made for. The pinnacle of God's creation is humanity, body, soul, being, uniquely created in the image of God, both male and female. We were created to be his representatives and co-rulers over creation. Humanity was to fulfill this task by representing God's character in accordance with his good design and command, and physically multiplying through the institution of marriage between one husband and one wife. Oh, nope, that's good. All right. Thanks for reading. Well, let's start with this first phrase. The story reveals who we are and what we were made for. So in this article, we're attempting to answer the question, what are we? And why are we here? And we believe that the Christian story reveals that answer to us. So what is a human? Our answer is the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity body-soul beings uniquely created in the image of God, both male and female. So there are four concepts in this sentence alone that explain the essence of what it means to be human. And there are innumerable implications for our lives when we understand these concepts. First, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. We have intrinsic value and significance. J. Lanier Burns contrasts this with the secular story beautifully. He says, in naturalistic evolution, humanity is a comma, in nature's endlessly rambling filibuster. Conversely, in God's word, humanity is the exclamation point at the climax of his purposeful, ordered creation account. Humans, made for loving relationships with God and with others, have inherent dignity. They're more than merely matter. They have an immaterial aspect that distinguishes them from other earthly creatures. We are the crowning work of God's creation. But Burns links the crowning work not just to order, but to the immaterial aspect of what it means to be human. Now, what is that immaterial aspect? Well, that's the second concept. We are body-soul beings. Now, throughout history, there have been several teachings on the relationship between the body and the soul. But there is no worldview that has an understanding of the dignity of the body and the dignity of the soul quite like the Christian worldview. Some worldviews have argued that our true selves are our souls, and we're stuck. Our true, souls are, our true selves are stuck, trapped in these biological bodies that are essentially prisons. Some have taken the opposite extreme, that there is no non-material self. There is no spiritual, there's just a body. 
But from the perspective of the Christian story, we are more than just a body, and we are more than just a soul. We're more than the sum of our parts, so to speak. We are not fully human without both. We are embodied souls, or in the words of uh, my former professor, Dr. Michael Spiegel, we are ensouled bodies. Esteeming our biological bodies and our souls as good and necessary to being human. Our third and fourth component of what it makes us human, of what makes us human, starts to bleed into this word called teleology, or the purpose of being human. What is our purpose for existing that God created us for? So the third concept is that we are male and female. Our genders are intrinsically tied to what it means to be human. God made us male and female. And one without the other is not capable of fully accomplishing God's purposes for human humanity. And we can clearly see that in the command to be fruitful and multiply. We cannot do one without the other. And according to the scriptures, both are made in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth. We're both image bearers. Christians uphold the value of both genders as part of God's good design. And finally, the fourth concept. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Image of God, image of God. What does image of God mean? And where do we get this concept from? Well, we get it from the Bible. We get it from Genesis 1, 27 through 28, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, this is where we get into the second part of this article. We're not just talking about what the essence of a human is. We're talking about what the purpose of a human is. Why did, why did God create us? And I believe it's chiefly found in the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. So let's define our terms. What, is, what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Well, this is an image of George Washington. It is not George Washington, believe it or not. Actually, it's just a collection of pixels on a screen. And in fact, it's a collection of pixels on a screen that represent a painting. And that painting is not George Washington either. But when we look at this painting, despite it not being the actual George Washington, we still feel comfortable looking at it and saying, ah, that's George Washington. Why is that? Because it resembles him. Yeah, it resembles him. It's an image of him. The artist sets out to give us a representation of George Washington, to teach us about him. Yes, this may not be George Washington physically and literally, but it is an image of George Washington, and that is exactly what we are of God. We are not God, but we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are representations of God on the earth, so that when all of creation sees us, they might see a depiction of God. But how does one depict an invisible God? There have been many answers to this question in church history. Some have said it lies in our capacity to reason, to appreciate beauty, to do good, and perhaps all of those are true. Each of these would represent God in some way, the one who is truth, goodness, and beauty. But I don't think it's in our capacity alone that makes us image bearers of God. As we say in the rest of Article 3, here is our purpose. We were created to be his representatives and co-rulers over creation. Humanity was to fulfill this task by representing God's character in accordance with his good design and commands and physically multiplying through the institution of marriage 
between one husband and one wife. In the Christian story, it is in multiplying his character and values and ruling over creation in accordance with his design and commands that we truly represent him and fulfill our purpose. We do this normatively through families, and as we learn later on in the story, through churches via evangelism and discipleship. We are to do as God does, but within the realm of God's rulership over us. We are sub-rulers and creators, image bearers. That is who we are and what we were made to do. But one look out into the world tells us that we are not image bearers as we were meant to be. In fact, one could say the image is marred. Our relationship with God, each other, and creation is broken. And that leads us to the next article of our Statement of Faith, Article 4, which tells us the problem of the human situation, the fall. Can someone read Article 4 for me? Ramsey. The conflict in the story came when the first humans, Adam and Eve, gave in to Satan's temptation and rebelled against the Lord in the garden. By their willful disobedience, they earned condemnation and brought death and destruction into the world. Since then, every human being, except Jesus Christ, has been born with original sin, an inclination of the heart away from God and toward sin. Our sinful hearts reveal themselves in sinful thoughts, words, and actions, which go against God's good, gracious, wise, and perfect design, and likewise have earned the wage of sin, which is death. Thanks for reading. I think it's clear to everyone in the world that things are not the way they should be. Something is off. Something is broken about our world. In my humanities class at TCS, we're about to read the Communist Manifesto. Karl Marx saw that there was great evil and disparity in our world, but he believed that the evil that sustained the disparities and evil in the industrialized world wasn't inherently in the hearts of man, but instead was the result of economic structures hindering humanity's progress towards a world of true equity. According to Marx, we could have utopia if only the laborers were willing to take it. I think Marx is a fine example that even though everyone agrees that there's a problem with humanity, we don't all agree on how it's to be solved. And this is largely, in part, because of our worldview. In order for us to understand the problem that plagues humanity according to the Christian story, we must understand what happened at the fall. So let's go ahead and look at this article. It says, the conflict in the story came when the first humans, Adam and Eve, gave in to Satan's temptation and rebelled against the Lord in the garden. The devil made me do it. How many times have you heard that one? But there lies a real question that humanity has to ask. Should Satan, the antagonist of the Christian story, be held responsible for the fall? Why does humanity pay the price when it was him who tempted Eve? To quickly answer a very big question, there is a reason Satan came under the guise of a serpent. In the previous chapter, we see God's command to, hu to humanity. You are to rule over every beast of the earth, and you're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has given them their marching orders. Adam and Eve knew better. All Satan had to do was get them to listen to their own hearts for just a minute, rather than God's truth. And in their decision, they willfully chose to disobey the command of God. A sort of divine mutiny occurred in the garden. 
So what were the results of this first rebellion? Let's keep reading the article. By their willful disobedience, they earned condemnation and brought death and destruction into the world. The key verse relating to the consequences of sin is found in Romans 6.23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a wage, a payment that must be made for sin, and that wage is death. Sin and death. These are the two great problems that plague humanity. When man sinned and death entered the world, destruction wreaked havoc on everything. Our relationship with God was severed. Our relationship with each other was broken. And even creation itself groans through natural disasters, such as hurricanes, plagues, and famines. The world is broken as a reverberating effect from death entering the world. Yet those realities pale in comparison to the existence of death. Death is the cause of all of our woes. Death is the ultimate problem that must be solved. For even if we solve all the lesser problems in the world, if we solved world hunger, if we solved inequality, and we created a utopia, in the end, death would have the final word still. And as much as modern man tries to avoid it, and as much as we try to hide from it, we must all face our own mortality. As the words of the psalmist says, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Psalm 103. But why do we get the punishment for sin when it was Adam and Eve who disobeyed God? Not me. I wasn't in the garden. Well, here's our answer. Since then, every human being except Jesus Christ has been born with original sin, an inclination of the heart away from God and towards sin. The classic teaching of Christianity throughout history has been that because of the, because of the first human sins, every human being sins, thus incurring the same penalties for sin that our original ancestors did. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And as a result, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man and every woman on earth is born a sinner. We're born with hearts bent away from God and towards sin. In the Christian worldview, we're not born as blank slates. We're not formed and shifted or formed and molded by society to be good or evil. We are born sinners, and we aren't surprised when evil rears its ugly head in our world. To some degree, we as Christians expect it. But what exactly is sin? There's much debate in our world about what makes something a sin. We answer the question this way. Our sinful hearts reveal themselves in sinful thoughts, words, and actions which go against God's good, gracious, good, gracious, wise, and perfect design and likewise have earned the wage of sin, which is death. You see, our culture's ethical grid is very different from this. In our culture, good actions are whatever it, whatever it is that lets you be your most authentic self, whatever helps you achieve comfort and, and happiness. 
And evil is often seen as whatever hinders others from seeking to be their authentic selves and achieving comfort and happiness. In culture, we listen to our hearts, and it seems cruel that God would want anything else for us. But God's love goes beyond desiring us to be happy. God is a consuming fire. His goodness, his perfect holiness is God's will for our lives. And God rightly demands this of us. And perhaps this brings us full circle to last week's lesson on theology proper, on God. Our whole concept of sin must start with understanding God and his love for us. C.S. Lewis said, we cannot call a line crooked unless we have some idea of what a straight line is. Goodness is first evaluated by God's character and his design. His goodness is the goal, and falling short of that goal is sin. His holiness is the standard of, right, of what is right, and therefore any deviance from that standard is sin. God is in fact holy, and we are in fact sinners, and therefore we earn sin's penalties. So is there any hope? Is this all there is to the human situation? Our answer is no. In the grand drama of the Christian story, there is hope. So let's get into the good news. Article 5, Salvation. Can someone read Article 5 for me? Okay, great. The good news, the gospel, this story is that salvation is possible and is universally offered to anyone. Salvation is made possible through Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection on the third day, which constitutes the climax of the story. Salvation from sin is holy and exclusively by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. When a person repents and believes, they are declared righteous, forgiven of sin, reconciled to God, united with Christ, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and destined for resurrection and life. Great. Thank you so much for reading. So from the beginning of the story, well actually even before the story begins, God knew that his people would sin and bring death and destruction upon the world. But God's love remained. And so God planned from the beginning of time to save his people from their sin. So what do we at The Journey believe about this salvation? Well, first, we believe that salvation is possible. The good news, the gospel of this story, is that salvation is possible and is universally offered to humanity. We are not without hope. God did not leave us to die in our sin. God set in motion a plan to save humanity and reconcile us to him. And he offers that salvation to anyone who would receive it. Now there are divisions among Christians about what must happen in a <laughs> sinner's life to enable him to receive the salvation. But God holds out his hand to anyone who would receive mercy. And there will be no one at the judgment seat who can say they believed in the gospel but were not saved. Now let's examine this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the basis of our salvation? Well, our article on salvation says, Salvation is made possible through Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection on the third day, which constitute the climax of the story. This is the critical distinctive of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is the central figure of the Christian story. Why Jesus? Well, God's desire is that humanity would represent him on the earth as his image bearers. But humanity rebelled against God and earned the wage of death. Now humanity is sinful and fallen, 
and sinful and fallen creatures cannot represent a good and perfect God. But God loves humanity, and he still desires a kingdom of image bearers. But to restore humanity without punishing sin would be unjust. It would be an injustice, and God is a God of justice. The penalty must be paid, and it must be paid in full. And we cannot save ourselves. So what would God do? I believe his plan is beautiful. What if someone took the penalty in humanity's place? It cannot be someone who deserved that penalty, or else they would be paying for their own sin. And it cannot be a human born of natural means, because original sin would still be passed down. And even if there were such a thing as a sinless individual, a sinless individual mortal man, who could take that penalty in our place, he would only be worth perhaps another mortal man. Whose life could possibly be worth the price of all of humanity, every single human that has ever lived from the garden until the end of the age? It could be no ordinary man. And no ordinary man did the Father send. In the greatest act of selfless love, God gave himself for us. Charles Spurgeon said, God has come into human history, and here the bright lights begin. Where God is at work in grace, abounding sin is conquered, hope begins, and good becomes a reality. Humanity left to itself is like an avalanche rushing down the steep mountainside. Lo, God in Christ Jesus throws himself in the way, intervening so as to be crushed beneath the descending rocks. But he rises from the dreadful burial, stops the terrible avalanche, curls back the tremendous mass, and changes the whole aspect of history. In this divine intervention, we behold and adore the almighty grace of God. As I said before, this is the critical distinctive of the Christian faith. In every other religion and worldview, the human situation is presented, man has a problem and needs a solution, but the solution is always based on humanity's own effort. In the Christian story, we cannot save ourselves, but God can, and he does. Christ steps on the scene. God became man, born of the Virgin Mary, and lived a perfect <coughs> life. He did everything that we could not, and as such, he is the true, perfect image of the invisible God the image bearer that we could not be. And as such, that perfect righteousness, that perfect obedience earned him a reward, the reward of life. Whereas sin incurred the wage of death, perfect obedience resulted in eternal life. But what happened next to our sinful hearts might be the most scandalous event in history. The only human in history to ever earn the reward of life instead took on the pain and punishment of death. Why? Because on that cross, there was a great exchange. He took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. He took our death, and he gave us his life. He was our substitute. The prophet Isaiah says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And there in the tomb, Christ's body lay. As the song goes, the light of the world by darkness slain. But God could not and would not stay dead. God is life. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave in accordance with the scriptures. In this, he proved that he was God. He proved that he had indeed defeated death. And the course of human history has changed. Now Satan is on the retreat. Death and brokenness in the world has an expiration date. And being united with him in his death, we too are assured that one day we will be resurrected just as he was into perfected, glorified bodies. This is the good news. The problems that plague humanity, namely sin and death, have been solved. But how do we receive that good news? At the journey, we believe that salvation from sin is wholly and exclusively by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As I said earlier, every false story of the world says that we are saved from our problem by our own good works. But this is not the case in the Christian story. Christ is our substitute. We are saved by his grace, and we receive that grace through faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. The key verse that explains how we receive the gospel is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now let's define a few words. What is grace? Grace is free, unmerited favor. It is God giving us something we do not deserve. This is closely linked with, his, with the idea of mercy, God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace assumes there is nothing on our part that has earned or merited the salvation that Christ offers on the cross. It is simply because God loves us that he chose to save us. It is a gift. Second, we must define faith. Charles Ryrie says, faith means confidence, trust, to hold something as true. Of course, faith must have content. There must be confidence or trust about something. To have faith in Christ unto salvation means to have confidence that he can remove the guilt of sin and grant eternal life. Norman Geisler says, it is the kind of belief that has trust and confidence in Christ for salvation and thereby implies a commitment to follow and obey him. To sum up, Christ is our substitute on the cross. He offers us freely, by his grace, his righteousness and eternal life in exchange for our sin and its penalty. We receive the life he offers by trusting in his death and resurrection, that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. And if you believe that to be true, then you are saved. Lastly, let's look at the benefits that salvation brings. The article says, When a person repents and believes, they are declared righteous, forgiven of sin, reconciled to God, united with Christ, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and destined for resurrection to eternal life. Now, time does not permit me to dive into details about each of these benefits. My hope is that you would grow to love and understand each of these as you're a part of the journey. When you place your faith in Christ, you are declared righteous. That means when you stand before the judgment seat, the Father does not weigh your sin against your goodness. 
Christ instead advocates on your behalf, saying his righteousness is now yours. And God welcomes you into his family as he welcomes his own son. And as a deposit of that salvation, God gives us the Holy Spirit who we discussed last week. And now, as those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we are destined for resurrection to eternal life. The problems that plague the world are unwound. So as we wrap up, if you'd allow me to give you one more Lord of the Rings reference. I think there's a powerful parallel of Christ's resurrection in the scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings uh, with Samwise Gamgee. I apologize if this is a spoiler for anyone, but you've had 74 years to read it. <laughs> but at the end of the book, when Sam Gamgee awakes in a bed after having carried Frodo up Mount Doom to destroy the ring, he sees his long-lost friend Gandalf, who he thought had died much earlier in the story, and is in fact alive. To his surprise, there Gandalf stood, alive and well. Here's what it says. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. I can't help but think as I read this story, is this not how we should respond to the gospel? As we approach Christmas, the hymn, O Holy Night, comes to mind. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The Christian story isn't just a story of the human situation. It's the story of God's plan to make everything sad come untrue. As we leave here today, I want to first thank you for listening. I know that was a lot to pack in a short amount of time. But there's some things I want you to consider today. First, I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself, do you feel the worth of your soul, the weight of your sin, and the relief that comes from trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And second, when you think of the people in your life that don't know Jesus, do you see points where this telling of the Christian story answers the deepest longings of their heart? In previous weeks, we talked about how the Christian story makes sense of our world and that the secular story fails to account for reality. This week, I want you to consider this question. What about the Christian understanding of humanity, the fall, and salvation directly addresses the desires and fears of our culture that are not being met by the secular story? Maybe it's something they're very passionate about, like politics or social justice, 
Maybe it's a brokenness or a sin that's weighing heavy on your friend or coworker's heart. Maybe it's a lack of contentment a sense, or a, a lack of hope, a feeling that every day is mundane and that there's nothing greater to life than this. And lastly, I want to recommend a resource. Um, this is a book called Strange New World. It's a shorter version of a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Uh, and it's a good place if you want to start unpacking uh, how our culture's vision of what it means to be human has changed in the last couple hundred years. Um, and why we see many things today that baffle us as far as gender, sexuality, and, and those kinds of things. Um, and also, I want to encourage you to continue thinking about studying, uh, reading some of our theology books that we recommended, such as the Exploring Christian Theology series, or Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie, because those books will help you get a good understanding of the Christian story's vision of humanity, sin, and salvation. Um, and when we get back from Thanksgiving, uh, we could talk about all these things as Mace leads us into our next lesson in our Core Convictions series on the church. Um, but if y'all will pray for me, I'll wrap up today. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time you've given us to study your word, to study the Christian story, Lord, and learn who we are. To praise you that we have meaning, we have purpose, we have worth. There's a reason we're alive, that we're here. There's something to live for, Lord. And that there's also a hope that the problems of this world that plague us, that everything sad will become untrue. And God, I pray that we would trust in that, find relief in that, grow in that, and walk in that truth. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And I ask that you bless the rest of our evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.